0: You're listening to Reach MDXM 233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Clinicians Roundtable. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Vernon Williams. Dr. Williams is Director of Sports Neurology and Pain Management at the Sports Concussion Institute in Marina Del Rey near Los Angeles, California.
1: Welcome. Uh, thanks, Leslie. It's really good to be here, and I'm, I'm really looking forward to our conversation.
0: Great. Thank you. Me as well. Today, we're discussing the management of mild traumatic brain injury. Vern, considerable confusion exists among the public and physicians. Just how common is this problem?
1: It really depends on how you look at it, but by any account, no matter how you look at it, it's a, it's a very common problem. In fact, you know, my group at Sports Concussion Institute, we really consider mild traumatic brain injury or concussion to be an unrecognized or an un- underappreciated epidemic, particularly with, res- with respect to sports. Even outside of sports, concussion is a significant problem. I mean, more children die in the United States of brain injury than, than any other traumatic cause. But with respect to sports, we know there's hundreds of thousands. Some uh, estimates are about 300,000 concussions per year related to sports. Uh, So it's a very, very common problem.
0: So 300,000 concussions a year in this country?
1: That's right. And that's a lot, as I said, by by any measure. And, you know, the most common kinds of sports where concussions are involved obviously include some of the collision sports like football, uh, hockey, soccer as well. But even though, you know, you tend to hear about concussions in the NFL with, with some of the famous athletes and that kind of thing, keep in mind Again, some estimates are that there are about 5,000 concussions each year for every one concussion that occurs in the NFL this year. It's a big, big problem.
0: Let's take a step back. What exactly is a concussion?
1: That's a great question. And it's a great question because the definition, and believe it or not, has kind of evolved over the course of time. At one point, we used to think that concussions involved loss of consciousness. And now it's pretty clear that they don't require loss of consciousness. And in fact, the overwhelming majority of concussions won't involve any loss of consciousness. The best definition, I think, and this is one that was most recently put forward, is that a concussion is some kind of complex pathophysiologic process that affects the brain. It causes some alteration in brain activity and neurologic function. Usually that alteration is temporary and it will resolve spontaneously but sometimes people can have more prolonged symptoms.
0: Okay. Well, that's certainly different than I was taught back in medical school where you you had to have loss of consciousness to to make the diagnosis.
1: Yeah, it is very different. And, you know, we're, we're spending a considerable amount of time trying to educate people and not just athletes, but coaches, trainers, parents, physicians, or what have you on exactly what concussion is. Because in many cases, people won't recognize that they've had a concussion. They'll They'll think they just kind of had their, their bell rung. And when I played football in high school, that's what our coach told us. If you, if you got up after a big hit and were kind of dazed and confused, oh, you just got your bell rung. You're all right. Get back in there. In actuality, that, that constitutes a concussion.
0: That's a concussion.
1: That is a concussion. Keep in mind, you've got this brain, this soft brain that's housed inside this hard skull. And what can happen is because the skull has these bony ridges and and that kind of thing, the shape of the skull and, and the features of the skull, if that brain kind of crashes into the skull because of some impact, you can scrape the undersurface of the brain, the frontal lobes and temporal lobes in particular, against the skull. You can have these impact forces that are transmitted to the brain and disrupt all of these complicated, you know, electrical and metabolic functions of the brain cells. And those things will cause Abnormalities in how the brain is able to work. There's clearly some disturbance in metabolism that's associated with it, and and it doesn't require some abnormality of anatomy. That's why often MRIs and CAT scans are normal. But a concussion involves this change in abnormality in how the brain is working, and it can be very temporary, but does not require loss of consciousness. So it's key to educate people as to exactly what kinds of things constitute concussions so that they can report those symptoms if they have them.
0: So, you know, my kids play soccer. What about heading the ball in soccer? Is every time you smack your head against the ball, is that a concussion?
1: I hope not. And, and I don't think it is. I don't think anybody would say that every time the ball hits your head or you head the ball in soccer, that there's a concussion involved. Soccer is an interesting sport because there is some information that the more you head the ball, the higher likelihood there is that you can measure some kind of differences in neurocognitive function. So, And this is particularly with respect to elite soccer players. They've looked at some of this stuff in amateur soccer players and, you know, uh, little league soccer and that kind of thing, and you really don't find any significant changes or differences in that population. But if you look at elite soccer players, professionals and, and collegians and that kind of thing, you can separate them out based on position. With respect to neurocognitive tests. If you've
0: just joined us, you're listening to Reach MD XM 233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Vernon Williams. We are discussing the diagnosis and management of concussions. So, Dr. Williams, what age group is most at risk for developing a concussion?
1: You know, this seems to kind of tease out to two two age groups as you you might imagine children are at risk of concussion and this has to do with the kinds of things that kids do you know kids ride bikes kids play sports kids may do things that are a little riskier with respect to the potential risk for injury so that age group is at risk but again adults have concussions as well and particularly as you get into the elderly where there's risk of falls and uh, motor vehicle accidents or what have you, they're also at risk for concussion. I think one of the most interesting things related to age and concussion is that there's this growing evidence that the adolescent brain might be more vulnerable to the effects of concussion. For instance, if if you check neurocognitive testing after a concussion, and let's say for the sake of argument that all of these people have a grade one concussion, everybody would agree that it was a mild or grade one concussion. If you check how long it takes for those deficits to resolve, there's a clear difference, a distinction between grade one concussions in adolescents and grade one concussions in adults. It takes the adolescents a little longer for their symptoms to resolve And it takes them a little longer for their changes in abnormalities on our most sensitive testing to resolve. Almost every age group is at risk. But when you talk about some of the, you know, long-term sequela and and the duration of, of those symptoms, it looks like adolescents and children may be a little bit more at risk than adults, which is important.
0: Yeah, no kidding. And and again, the, the risk of sport injuries, especially in that age group. So why don't you walk us through, you mentioned grade one concussions. Can you give us, for those of us who are, are long removed from this topic in our education, what are the grades and how do you know the differences between them?
1: Yeah, Leslie, let me just first say with respect to the grading systems, there is a significant number of different grading schemes and grading systems out there with respect to how we can identify and assess severity of concussion. But keep in mind that all of these are are, are kind of based on personal experience or some consensus of a group of, of physicians who have expertise in concussion. None of them have been specifically validated as one being better than another or what have you. But they help give us some guidelines as to, as to how to look at this problem. One of the most common grading systems used is the American Academy of Neurology grading system, which has a grade 1, grade 2, and grade 3. Grade one would be people who have concussion symptoms that resolve entirely within 15 minutes. So let's say an athlete plays football. They get their bell rung, as we mentioned earlier, and they have symptoms that are noticed and and identified by uh, the trainer or coach or team physician. They are examined and evaluated, and all of their symptoms resolve within 15 minutes. That would be considered grade one particularly given the fact that in that situation the patient had no loss of consciousness. Mm -hmm. A grade two concussion would also be one where there was no loss of consciousness, but the symptoms lasted for more than 15 minutes. And then a grade three concussion would be any concussion with loss of consciousness. Now that's, according to American Academy of Neurology, that's one way to grade concussion. But keep in mind that there is, again, evolving evidence that our grading schemes and grading systems uh, probably need to be revised. And and, and the reason is that some people would argue, and I agree with those people, that that particular kind of grading system places too much emphasis on whether or not there was loss of consciousness. Uh, Again, concussion doesn't require loss of consciousness, and as it turns out, there are some other features to the syndrome that may be more predictive of severity than presence or absence of loss of consciousness, such as, presence or absence of amnesia, or presence or absence of post-traumatic migraine. These kinds of things, many have shown, tend to be a better predictor of how severe the concussion was and how long the symptoms may last. And whether or not there was just loss of consciousness.
0: Well, and again, it sounds like what now we consider to be grade one concussions probably weren't even thought of as concussions in the past.
1: That's right. And <laughs> the more you kind of dig into this, this science and into this subject, it, you, you realize that there's so much to learn and there's so much that we can educate people on that we've already learned. You're absolutely right. It, you know, 20 years ago, many of these things that we're calling concussions now would, would not have been thought of as concussions. And players would have kept playing right through it. They may not have even reported it. And, and that's an important point because there's a significant number of people who have concussions and never report them because they don't know they had a concussion.
0: So let's talk about signs and symptoms. What do you see in a concussion?
1: Well, you'll see a lot of different things, and the symptoms can be varied. They can really be individualized from on, on a case-to-case basis, but the kinds of signs that you will often see is someone who's had a head injury and they appear dazed or confused for a period of time. They may have some changes in their motor activity. In other words, they move around in a clumsy fashion. They're not as skilled and fluid in their movements as normal. They may have difficulty answering questions. They may have changes in their personality or behavior. If it's an athlete, they may forget that they're on offense or defense. They may forget what play uh, was just run or what play is about to be run. And, of course, you can have loss of consciousness. So, but those are the kinds of signs that one may see. Symptoms, things that the, the patient may report, are, are also varied. So people may describe headache. They may describe nausea or vomiting. They may describe feeling off balance difficulties with vision, feeling sluggish, those kinds of things may be reported by patients. But one of the points that I, that I think is very important with respect to these signs and symptoms is that it's crucial to educate players themselves, teammates, trainers, coaches, because, again, as I mentioned, many times the athlete won't Report them, those symptoms themselves, and in some cases it's a teammate who first recognizes those symptoms if there's a football game going on and I'm the team physician on the sideline I'm 20 thirty yards away from the play sometime. the teammates are in the huddle with the with the player <laughs> so they'll often recognize that hey you know Johnny seems a little out of it or he, do, he doesn't know where to go where, where he's supposed to line up on this play or, and, and so often they will report these symptoms to the to the trainer or to the team physician because the player either won't recognize them or can't or for whatever reason will be hesitant. to.
0: Well, clearly, uh, educating both the players and the coaches seems to be a really important issue here. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Vernon Williams. We've been discussing the diagnosis of concussions. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on Reach MD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm
1: at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.